You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. From the epistle of St. James, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In this season of Advent, the church turns her attention to patient waiting for the coming of the Lord. In this waiting, time can almost be understood to be turning in on itself. For we wait for the coming birth of Christ, which has already happened, even as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, which has not yet happened. We wait as faithful servants, putting the house in order for a reality that we look forward to, making sure that the beds are made for all the guests, the meals are prepared, and the pantry fully supplied. We wait as the bride, never knowing when the bridegroom will appear. We wait as the watchman, always on guard, always vigilant. This is, of course, rather difficult to do, especially at the midpoint of December when Christmas excitement is buzzing around us. Maybe even when, in some cases, it's kind of died out a little bit, like the dead Christmas trees at HEB that are so heavily marked down. By the way, great deals to be had. The church, in her wisdom, however, teaches us to wait. She teaches us to watch. I've recently taken up the practice of taking off my watch when celebrating the Eucharist. The reason for this is rather straightforward in one sense. I shouldn't pay so much attention to time during the liturgy, how long it's going, what I have upcoming later in the day, how long the homily is taking. Hint, hint. In a greater sense, however, in the liturgy, time stands still while all of time and all of life becomes one. We are both here in Waco at the corner of 10th and Jefferson and at Calvary. We are both in 2019 and in all of time. For when sacraments cease, we will have only a heavenly and unending liturgy. I remember reading the memoirs of a priest who had had the great uh, privilege of celebrating the Eucharist at the Calvary altar at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as a young priest. He was in his mid-30s, and he says that he was rather underwhelmed by it because to his great amazement, he had been doing this ever since he was ordained. There was nothing special about it in one sense because all of the celebrations of the Eucharist had happened at the same place. A surface level look at Christian liturgy will see only the actions, only the words. One of the things I love about celebrating the Eucharist facing East, or liturgical East anyway, is that it makes clear that this surface level look is insufficient. It's an action that we would never undertake in public. It shows that there is someone else here to whom we're speaking, that we are leaving time to be with the one who is timeless. We very much need this lesson in time in which the purpose for which we have been made, the human telos, has been almost entirely lost. And therefore we have forgotten not only the ends for which we have been made, but therefore who we are. We have forgotten that to be made in the image of God is to be made like Jesus, to enjoy the beatific vision and glory in the face of God forever and ever and ever throughout all ages. This is who we are, eternal beings made for glory. And the liturgy gives us, as one author has put it, teleology to ontology, 
or if you're not a philosopher, purpose to our being. As scripture reminds us, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when the Lord comes again, we shall know. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the meantime, we have to wait. We watch and wait as God's beloved children. And as is often the case, it is very difficult for children to wait. I'm certain that at this very moment, there are children sitting in the pews, patiently waiting to find out what exactly is under that tree or on that high shelf in mom and dad's closet. Some of you are waiting to find out how the year will end and what is in store for the coming year. Some of you are waiting for babies to make their appearance. Some of you are simply waiting on the Lord, asking when will the Lord bring blessing or when will the Lord make his entrance into this or that. You might be in one of the hardest times you've ever faced and waiting for health or waiting for financial woes to cease. Nevertheless, the call to each Christian during Advent is to cast all of our waiting, all of our cares on Jesus, the one who has come and is coming. There are various models given to us in Holy Scripture for this patient waiting and watching. We have Mary who ponders in her heart the things revealed to her by an angel. She, as a pregnant woman, has to wait, and even throughout her life, has to wait. We have Joseph, who patiently cherishes his bride and waits for the fulfillment of the hopes of his people in Jesus. He is at the tail end of a long line of waiters and watchers. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who waited so long for the fulfillment of their hopes in becoming pregnant with their son, with their son John, I often think of Zechariah standing there in the temple with the thurible going and thinking, I've been doing this for six weeks at a time for most of my life, and when will it ever come to an end? I've been doing this over and over and over and over and over again, and nothing has changed. John and Elizabeth are given, however, an even greater hope than that of a son born to them in the coming of the Messiah. The one we read about today is John the Baptist, not out in the Jordan proclaiming a gospel of repentance as he was last week, but sitting in prison, not able to behold Jesus the Messiah, but only hearing about his works, hearing about his deeds. We might be led to believe through this that John has lost his faith, that he sends his disciples to ask a question of Jesus because he no longer believes that he is the one who is to come. But we can only do that because we're looking back when we already know the rest of the story. A far greater understanding comes from thinking of John as a watcher, as one patiently waiting for the fulfillment of the hopes of his people, the hopes of the prophets. John is waiting to see, will there be release for the captive? Will there be good news for the poor? Will the deaf hear? Will the dead be raised? Because when that happens, then we will know and know surely. John has waited for the day that the deaf, the blind, the lame, and the leper, even the dead, will be healed. He waits for this because it is quite simply the hope of Holy Scripture. The blind should come to sight when the Messiah comes. The lame should walk, the leper cleanse, the deaf hear. It should should occur to us that all our secular society can possibly hope for when it comes to the deaf and the lame and the blind, the leper, not so much lepers anymore, all we can hope for is medical advancement. 
a cure. Maybe simply something to make it a little easier. But barring that, all we can look for is the integration of those who were previously marginalized. Do you know that, what that's like? That if you're blind today, the only thing you can hope for is a day when you can be at the center instead of on the margins. I was once the rector of a church that had a contract with a piano tuner who was blind. And he would occasionally bring his dog with him to, to church. And I was talking to him one day, and he was just talking about how difficult life was, that if he got out to the bus and he couldn't see which bus was coming and he missed it, he'd be late for his appointments, and he'd have to reschedule all of them. If he was uh, on his way somewhere and an important job was coming up and, and he tripped and fell, it would just wreck his whole week. He was one who lived in constant waiting, constant waiting for things to change, constant waiting for things to be different. What is, the, what is it that Jesus does about this? He heals. And most often, he doesn't say, now follow me, now that you've been healed of your disease, follow me. What does he say? Go, 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 live your life. Go back to your life. Obviously, a better life, but go back to it. The healing he brings is not about recruitment. It's about God's justice and love coming early to this world. It's almost as if Christmas has come early. But we also have to take into account one other thing that we often miss about John, and that is that John knows that he will likely precede the Lord in his death. He will go down among the dead before seeing the things for which he has hoped. All of this messianic fulfillment that he himself has proclaimed. Being a good Jew, he must have had his doubts. The place of the dead, Sheol, for the Jew, is a place devoid of hope. Would he be the prophet who did not see the things that he had proclaimed? Among the dead, the, the dead have passed out of the mind. They are broken vessels. They are forgotten. They are devoid of the praises of God. And John, at this point in his life, is on death row. He's a dead man walking. He is waiting in a time that he might assume will be the only waiting he will ever do for the rest of his life. And later, what we know is that even the crucified one will come to him among the dead. In Christian art, like this image which I've put on the slide here, John is depicted as, a, as behind bars. Do you see him behind the bars? With an animal chained up next to his cell and his disciples on the outside. The animal is normally a leopard, it's a leopard here, an image of sin and carnal lusts. Yet the leopard doesn't look at John, the leopard looks away. He can't bear to look at this man of sanctity. You will see also that the leopard impedes the way to a heavenly ascent, this zigzagging staircase. John has a way to access this staircase by a back door, and you can see someone standing in it. The image is essentially one of evil and sin being chained up, but the way to salvation lying through a prison cell. You might see also that the prison bars on John's cell can be opened by pulling on another prominent chain. He can be released by his friends, or he can sojourn on in that prison. And this is quite an image for Advent, quite an image for what it means to wait, 
to wait even in solitude, to wait even in disappointment. We know that impeding our way to glory is a wild animal of lust and earthly desire which we must avoid. It is chained up, however. It cannot hurt us. It cannot harm the way. And yet we are all afraid or held captive to fear of it. We can be victors if we remain in the mercies of God, if we remain in the way of sufferings both small and great. We can be triumphant if we walk in the martyr's way, which is not a way of captivity, but a way of freedom, a way of witness. The coming of Christ, in essence, turns all reality on its head. The way to salvation is not the easy way, but the difficult way. The way to salvation isn't even through triumphing over a leopard who wants to kill and eat you. The way is through waiting. This Christian waiting makes all times short, and all our anticipation for this coming, the second coming of Jesus, and indeed waiting for his coming to us, are rooted in the truth that the Lord has already come. John sits in this prison cell, and he asks his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him, are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? Why would he even ask that? If he's waiting for one who has not yet come, what is his life? What is it worth? And so he says, shall we look for another? In the Greek, there's a bit of nuance that is lost in translation. This word, erkomenos, is translated as is to come. Are are you he who is to come? But it could also be read, if you got a little creative, it could be read, is to go? For in Christ, the one who has come is also the one who is to go. To go to the cross, to go among the dead, to go to the Father. In fact, all it takes to understand this is a change of perspective. When we're waiting for someone to come to us, as we do during Advent, from their perspective, they are going. And when we go to someone, we are the one who is coming. And therefore, Jesus is both coming into the world and going to the Father, coming as the one who is sent and going as one who is called. And the same is true for the Christian who lives that life. The Christian is also one who is going and coming, coming and going. We are coming into continually the realization of whom we are to be. We are also going to a place and a time to which we have not been. And John shows us all of this so clearly. He is going to his death while coming to the fulfillment of all his hopes. That's what should be so awkward, so paradoxical about Advent. We say we're waiting for Jesus, and yet we go to the rail, and, we, and I say to you, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. Isn't that weird? What are we waiting for? He's already here. This says something to us about the Christian life being that of, of in a sense, realized eschatology. It is already the end. You and I already live in that time. We already live in that space. We already live in the day of the Lord's coming. We already live in it, and yet we still have to wait. And what is the Lord's response to John's request? Well, he doesn't say, I'm coming. And he doesn't say, I'm going to the cross or going to the Father. But he says this to those disciples that are sent with this question. He says, first, go. Do you hear that? Go. And tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Who are the first recipients of the gospel in Jesus' words? The blind, the lame, the leper, the deaf, the dead even. Isn't that good news if you're about to die? That the dead even are raised up? That the poor have good news preached to them? That it is not the rich of this world, it is not the have-beens who receive all of this, or it is not those who are who receive all this, it is those who have never been. Jesus sends these disciples of John to witness to what they hear and see. They, like John, have waited eagerly for the coming of Messiah. They have watched, they are those who have heard the prophetic word of Scripture and have therefore waited on God's promises. They have watched for the things which the prophets foretold, namely the good news for the poor, sight for the blind, the lame walking, the dead raised. Jesus is here merely confirming what they already thought, that the hopes of Israel have been made manifest in Jesus. And Jesus simply talks after this to those who remain. And twice he says, he asks this question, why then did you go out to John in the in the wilderness? Why did you go out to him in the Jordan? What was it that you wanted to see? He knows they didn't want to go out to see ordinary, to see earthly things like reeds shaken by the wind, or even the greatest things which one can see on earth, like people clothed in lush, beautiful garments. No, they went out to see a prophet. They went out to see someone who was awaiting the great deeds of God, who was speaking to the great things of God. And indeed, they went out to see the last of the prophets, the greatest of all men. Jesus confirms this. He's the greatest who's ever been born of women. But their imaginations are held up. They are bound by where they are now and not by what they will be. Our, imagin our imaginations are often held captive, only able to think about the present, only to think about our present difficulties, only to think about our present situations, to think only of material things and circumstances. And we get held up in this mental and spiritual loop. And we forget something. That the Lord Jesus Christ has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. That's what's happening in these healings. These who have not had an abundant life, who have not lived an abundant life, are being given an abundant life. And it is not merely for them, but for all. The miracles which Jesus performs are not just miracles. They are assurances that Jesus is in truth showing the people gathered there on that day, as well as you and me, that this present life is not all there is. There is a greater life which is beyond there is a greater life which we cannot see. There is a greater life which lives in the Lord's presence. James writes this in today's epistle. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does at hand mean? We read this in scripture all the time. What does it mean? It means you can reach out from right where you are and grab it. 
not, not necessarily catechism, but Jesus, Jesus. To establish one's heart in the knowledge that he is right there. You're about to go up to that rail and hold your hands out. The Lord is at hand. And yet you still have to wait. And that's difficult. What does it mean to establish one's heart? It means, quite simply, to steadfastly orient, to turn the heart, to firmly face the Lord Jesus Christ in all of life, in our waitings, in our watchings, and in all of our hopes. Let us turn to Jesus steadfastly, establishing our hearts in him, that we may wait upon him even as he draws near. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.